Welcome to Householders, a conversation about American life as Zen practice. I'm Inga Annie Wade. And I'm Kyosaku John Mitchell, and we're lay members of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center. A lot of the people in my life that practice sitting meditation are not Buddhists and are not practicing any form of maybe even what they would call spirituality. I would say maybe half of them are practicing something that they think of as just sort of a mental health thing or, you know, just some wellness activity that has no spiritual yeah. component, maybe because they don't believe in spiritual components or, you know, are, are, are rejecting a sort of a religious upbringing or whatever it is, like they see this as an alternative to spirituality. And then the other half are sort of non-affiliated spiritual people who who have picked up sitting meditation as, you know, one of the things in the sort of bag of tricks of, you know, I'm hesitant to use the word new age, but culture of do-it-yourself spirituality. I, I wouldn't call it new age either. Yeah, I mean, I don't think Not that's fair. Not when doctors are prescribing it to people <laughs> not prescribing it but recommending it i mean meant to say right but i think that i think that a lot of people who hear about it from that context in my life are in that first category of thinking of it as not a spiritual practice the other half that i'm talking about are the ones who are thinking like this is direct do it yourself spirituality that i don't need a religion for uh and you know either i do this by myself and it's my own thing and there is no community aspect or in some cases that are actually maybe even more interesting to me, uh, like the, the community of people making up their own spiritual practices mm-hmm. uh, how, out of whatever raw materials they find are my community. And that's a new thing that we're doing. That, that might even be considered a third category, I would say. Yeah. Yeah. And I, you know, I know I, I've talked about my siblings mm-hmm. as far as they're kind of in that third uh, category. Um, so, uh, I could use them as references, uh, for sure in this. Yeah. Let's, let's think of that as a separate thing, as a, as a thing that, that that's not, cause that, that has that community aspect and that sort of more holistic, uh, approach to life and practice. Well, I mean, does it? Because it's like, they're thinking like how to, um, make, a meditation practice their own mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so nobody really ever does it the exact same way they do yeah there's some asterisks about it and maybe some risks about it but the but the thing the thing that i've been thinking about more is the is the sort of com- is the complete abstraction of meditation which is a word that you know we could unpack in a lot of ways from a zen point of view but for our purposes now i mean sitting and doing something that counts as meditation, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the, the thing I want to, the thing that I'm, that I'm a little bit worried about that that's just been on my mind is the number of people I know who are just doing that as an isolated activity, uh, either al- like, and, and you know, alone for all intents and purposes. Yeah. And, and certainly without any kind of broader set of practices that contain it or support it or help it develop or keep it on the rails mm-hmm. uh, in the way that a sangha and a teacher in our tradition, not to mention all the other kinds of practice other than sitting practice, 
would. Well, okay. I mean, I I mean, I don't. I'm going to try to see this from a very non-biased perspective, mm-hmm. because I kind of think that we we probably do a lot of things in our regular everyday lives that had a different context, um, and then the West sort of adapted and said this is a healthy thing to do. Mm. Um, you know, you should do that, but they don't. We don't really know what the context of how that thing originally developed. Um, you know, you mentioned yoga earlier, mm-hmm. and I will admit that uh, I've been doing yoga for years, but I don't think I know uh, much about the historical context or how it was practiced when the for the true intention of how yoga is supposed to be practiced. Mm-hmm. And does that mean that I am missing out on something? I don't Hmm. know. So I'm trying to like relay that type of thinking to meditation. Because from my perspective, I don't feel like I'm missing out. Mm -mm. But also because I don't know what I'm missing out on. (laughs) Well, to me, I'm, I'm not really worried about missing out. People like in from that point of view people who are doing this practice this way are doing the thing they want to do. Buddhism with formal religious uh, vocabulary and structure, not to mention, you know, like garb and titles and Dharma names and whatnot might seem like way too much cultural cruft to them. And, and that's uh, something they want to miss out on. And that's fine. What concern, what concerns me is, is the risks of, doing this practice in an uncontained way. And I don't know mm-hmm. enough about yoga with a capital Y to, to talk in specifics about that either. But I know a lot of yoga teachers who say that, who have the same concerns about sort of mainstream non-religious yoga that I, that I'm expressing about uh, mainstream non-religious meditation, which is that it opens you up to powerful spiritual experiences that, you know, we, that we, we have a 1500 year old container. Well, I mean, it depends how far back you want to go. We could go all the way back 2,500 <laughs> year old container, uh, of other supportive practices and structures and relationships that help you process those powerful things and mm-hmm. doing sitting meditation without any of that support is dangerous. Yeah. I mean, but I don't know. Like, I don't want to gatekeep meditation to be like, you can only meditate if you have a religious context for which you do it with. I'm not telling people what to do. I'm tr- I'm trying to I'm trying to protect them. Like, it's 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 not it, it it it's and I'm not even saying that it has to be religious or that it has to be one that already exists. But what what worries me and like this is not I'm not just saying this. Like, there are. There, there's a whole genre of blog post at this point of like meditation destroyed my life type stories where people have, you know, uh, go into intensive meditation practice with, for example, uh, undiscovered or unresolved serious trauma mm-hmm. or latent psychiatric problems or whatever it is. And they fry their brains and they, they, they have like uh, a very... They, they either have like a psychotic episode or they just have some sort of inexplicable uh, negative, you know, bad trip, to put it 
you know, like for lack of a better way to put it. And they end up scarred. We did talk about this a little bit with Amy Mm -hmm. in a past episode and something that she had been concerned about, Um, you know, being, you know, a psychotherapist herself. I could I could see where she's coming from. I think, you know, there's a lot of people who they're not going into it in as intense way. Like there's people who are just like, I'm going to listen to. I forgot the name of that um that meditation stuff that everybody uses. You mean like Headspace or Calm or yeah, Headspace. Thank you. Yeah. yeah, with the British dude, and they're just like, I'm going to listen to a guided meditation for 15 minutes a week or something mm-hmm. like that. I don't yeah. think anything's going to happen. No, I'm not. Them. I'm not worried about that. <laughs> <laughs> and plus, I guess you do have kind of like a guiding teacher. That guy, I think he he was like um a Buddhist, but I don't remember exactly what his background was. Um, and so he does kind of guide you in a way without like maybe the, um, conversation, the back and forth, uh, conversation, but I think maybe there's still, uh, value in having somebody just listening to somebody go through some of these mm-hmm. things with you that you might experience during your meditation. So you're talking about a very specific type of person that has, like you said, um, trauma of some sort um and they do some intensive meditation where where would this where would the context of this be like just going on a retreat randomly yeah i i you have you make a good point that it's like this is an intensive practice problem it's not really something that somebody who sits for a few minutes every couple days or whatever is gonna not the casual meditator yeah uh and i guess that's important to tell people in case there are people with practices like that listening to us that I'm not worried about you you're okay <laughs> you know it's it's this this is this is a problem yeah. for people who are who are hardcore and and going at it for sort of you know there's there's a lot of caution and we've talked about this in other aspects of zen practice there's a lot of caution about kind of going into meditation practice to get something or to have some kind yes. of objective. And and it's people like that. That's usually like yellow flag number one of somebody who's going to be super hardcore about this. And so, yeah, like a lot of these stories that I'm talking about that I've read and heard first person uh, are stories from retreats that people sign up for as a sort of like extreme sport kind of experience that they want to have. Um, maybe after having a few years or not <laughs> a few months uh, of of personal practice and deciding this is way cool, I want to get more into this. And so, you know, there are a lot of retreats marketed at those types of people, 10 day silent meditation retreats where you do, you know, really specific Theravada mindfulness practice and you you feel like every bone in your body vibrating and if there's anything weird or off in your body it can go really sideways really fast uh but you're the, you're absolutely right to point out that there's like a pretty high bar to getting into that situation but it's still pretty widespread i feel like we, yeah we so hear it's, about it, it seems a lot. to me that it's widespread enough where people hear about it but i still think it's fringe enough where it's not like the majority of cases of people just lay person that doesn't have any religion getting into um meditation 
yeah. for an hour a week or something like yeah. that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree. I guess the question is where people go if they want to learn more, you know, from that stage. Like I'm not a, I'm not a person who thinks that the existence of apps like Headspace and 10% better and whatever all those other ones are uh is bad for Buddhism or something. I think that I think that there's No, I don't think so either. I think it's wonderful for there to be millions of people who are using some form of meditation to calm their bodies and I think you're also right that guided meditation is a really safe way to develop that skill um you know depending obviously like uh this this mainstream mass scale version uh is a bit different from the sort of 60s and 70s version where you had to go sit with some teacher and uh you know those people's voices could end up guiding you into some pretty gnarly situations. Uh, I don't know anything about that. Well, there's just lots of lots of freaky (laughs) ashram cult stuff that has happened in, in you know oh sure i've heard of cults and stuff back in the 70s yeah but like a lot of them were masquerading as buddhism you know like yeah. a lot of a lot of people who went into practice buddhism in the 70s in the united states ended up in some really terrible situations and uh this this i mean it's kind of weird to say but this sort of free market mass scale technology enhanced version is a lot safer than yeah than that was uh uh, so it's good. I'm happy about that. But where do you go if you want to if you want to do more? And so some of these apps are associated with teachers from specific lineages, and others have teachers from all different kinds of lineages, and others have teachers that are explicitly not of any lineage or have some sort of clinical or scientific lineage, or you know, like went to some particular university program and have have their own set language that is all based in Western scientific, medicalized, or psychological vocabulary, uh, and. I it, it does I don't have numbers on this or anything but I feel like it's probably the case that a lot of people who start off there want to learn more and want to do more and the first thing you probably google for is meditation retreat and depending on who you are and depending on what your situation is you could already be in trouble at that point cuz meditation retreats are the big business of meditation right they're the things that you yeah. can sell hundreds of dollars of tickets to. And uh, that's where, you know, it's I, we're going to hopefully at some point soon have Fusats, our community leader, uh, on our show to here to talk about our retreats and how that's going to work, how that's going to look going forward. And I think uh, I'm very interested to know. I don't really know what the, what the, the post-COVID vision of retreats for our sangha is. Uh, but it's a good time to be rethinking all that stuff, but, but there's, there's uh, a lot of competition now. And I feel like the most aggressive marketing is coming from the most aggressive kinds of meditation, aggressive marketing of meditation retreats to the millions of millions of people who are suddenly into meditation is probably a warning sign rather than like a, a positive sign, because if you're, because there's such an opportunity to take people from casual millions of people from casual like introduction to meditation out of those millions of people a, f- a large number a still an objectively large number of them is going to be interested in something more intensive than that and it makes me nervous yeah i mean i i think that that it's a you know it's an interesting point you bring up um and it's not something that casual people know about that 
what happens to you when you meditate for for long periods of time and yeah, that's true what kinds of things come out come up um come out and come up mm-hmm. <laughs> um and maybe maybe they should you know s- somehow know like some sort of disclaimer ahead of time like you should probably work your way up to this before you commit to such a such a long practice or you should you know but what what is what is your main concern like there's the individual getting to a dangerous place because they meditated without a lot of practice for a long time and some gnarly shit came up Mm -hmm. um are you worried about the reputation of Mm. meditation at all Mm -hmm. like are there deeper fears that you have um besides just some some individuals that we're not sure how many people are actually going to do this or not that is a really fair and and important question for me to be asked about this about what it is that makes me so nervous because for Amy, I think she she gets nervous because it's like it, she could they could be like her um, uh, patients, you know, or yeah. whatever that that do this and that, you know, she would probably dissuade them from doing such a thing. But, you know, she could probably see it from from that perspective. Like I personally have met people who've done that and, you know, mess well, with them a lot. Or <laughs> I have too. I have friends who have had these kinds of episodes and I think about them all the time. I also studied with people who, the first academic people who were kind of studying risk of meditation when I was in college and, you know, got a, got a really good warning uh, about the kinds of things you need to deal with mm-hmm. if you're going to go, like, if you have, like, the things you need to examine your life for to as possible warning signs of things that you need to deal with before you really dive into this practice. So, and things you need to keep track of all along to see if they're coming up. And, you know, I got very lucky in that regard. And I, I, I don't know how common of an experience that is. Um, and, but so, so certainly, like, there are, there are, pe- like, like, it's a, big enough thing that I am concerned about specific people and, and, and work okay. and, you know, worried about communities that I'm in contact with because these kinds of episodes don't just affect one person in isolation. Yeah, sure. But, but there's, there's, there's you you, I don't know how you picked it up, but you, and maybe it's obvious and I'm just like not aware of how obvious it is, but like, there's clearly something about, uh, my, my sort of protectiveness of this practice itself uh that's that's got me worked up because mm-hmm. i am uh very committed to this practice as a way of life and i wouldn't want i mean reputation is a strange word for it for me but what there is there is sort of a um a concern for me of a kind of dark cloud over meditation practice as a thing that's okay to do. I guess this might be something to do with it. I'm, I'm still in the early part of normalizing this aspect of my life, uh, with the rest of my life. Um, you know, for, for my, for, for the last, you know, well, actually maybe until 
just recently, my whole adult life has sort of been built around my own weirdness and my, 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 um, my pursuit of this path as my authentic way of being. But now in the last, let's say five years, both my family life and my career and other things about um, who I am in the world uh, are turning towards this sort of, let's for lack of a better term, like normal, like the norm, the normie lifestyle. Uh, And I'm, and I'm in, I'm, I'm in relation personal and professional relationship with people who are much less exposed to weird stuff than I am. And then the people in my life thus far have been, and I'm, I don't want to hide anything about my Zen practice or my Sangha or my teacher or my, my, you know, my, my daily life and how much Zen it involves because mm-hmm. it's who I am and it's how I am who I am and it's an important part of who I am and it's a boundary I need to maintain. I need to I need to not compromise it in the interest of being whatever, normal, conforming. That's that's an interesting kind of uh, turn of events here. Yeah. <laughs> and it's fine and good when when meditation is like this hip thing that's good for mental health. But if it turns yeah. into something that like people are blowing their minds left and right about, then people start to then I begin to worry about my own ability to be out as a meditation, as a Zen practitioner. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's interesting coming out, you know, coming Mm -hmm. out as a Zen practitioner, I think, you know, have you had any like holdbacks to being open about it um, in any situation that you've um, come across? I've never had any formal resistance to it, but I could, I'm one degree of separation from like, I'm very, it's very possible for me to get into a situation where the people that I need to transact some professional situation with are too religious in a mainstream American sense for me to tell them this because it will freak them out or make them think I, you know, I or the people I'm representing are strange or fringe in some way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, why why are we catering to that? I mean, I I'm not saying I haven't done it too. <laughs> well, well, it's different now that it for me because there's a professional risk. Like when it was Jewish people, I didn't care. I liked freaking okay. them out, you know? Like in even even still like yes, my wife is a rabbi. Yes, she has sort of professional uh there are professional risks associated with her husband being for lack of a better term, unorthodox in his Jewish observance, but like, (laughs) so is she and we're confident in who we are and she doesn't, she is supportive of me. So when I'm in a situation with her and her, you know, Jewish participants in her stuff, I'm straight up about this. And, and even if they're uncomfortable, I push it and make it okay. You know, like I, I build the relationship and make it all right. But like that's that's a level of intimacy that's a lot higher mm-hmm. and a level of trust that's a lot higher than I have in professional scenarios. Okay. And more importantly, like I'm not in these professional scenarios representing my own interests. You know what I mean? Yeah. So I have to represent some something else. But I, I could I could see that. I don't have any holdbacks in my professional life that would prevent me from saying openly that 
I'm a Buddhist besides just like Dogen saying that you shouldn't go around telling people you're a Buddhist. Fair. <laughs> uh, but I don't have anything like that, that. But I don't I don't work in anything that it, any way that it would matter at all. Uh, but going back to our discussion about like people who I don't know what the you know the I guess the profile on these people would be the uh, the the persona mm-hmm. of these types of people that might go from like casual meditation to like a full blown silent retreat and um, you know have a bad trip, but I kind of feel like. Again, I could be I could be totally wrong. They're probably the same type of person who would use uh drugs like for um mental health purposes as well. You mean psychedelic drugs or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like if you take away the meditation, that's what they're gonna do. Mm-hmm. Is is there don't you think on some level or maybe it's not, but do you think on some level like doing meditation is safer than doing something like that? Yes, I do. But I also think that the risks are, the the risk factors are the same. Like it's, it's, I, I think that there are, I think that it's more likely that you will trigger those risk factors with psychedelics, but it's just a probability question. And the, uh, the, the risk factors are the same and the side effects and consequences are the same or similar enough. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think you're right to make this connection. It's people who it's psychonauts to use a really stupid (laughs) outdated word that I think people who are, who are those still use to describe themselves like people who are into exploring consciousness for its own sake. And there's something very college about that pursuit, but that's, that's still very, I mean, I think it's increasingly prevalent in, let's call it blue state culture in the United States, like with the legalization of cannabis kind of looming at a national level and the clinical legalization of psychedelics, the the medicinal legalization of psychedelics, like right around the corner from that. Yeah. In some places like Portland, they already legalized it. Yeah. Or decriminalized at least. Uh, and, And, and so I think that that, uh, is going to be a growing area of concern. And I mean, it's a growing area of like liberation and possibility and beauty. Also, I don't want to make it sound like it's not like all of this from interest in meditation to interest in psychedelics. All of this is about interest in our true nature, which it's about time people took some serious interest in, but there's, there's, uh, it's not like discovering and un, un and revealing your true nature is like a get out of jail free card for samsara <laughs> right like you yeah. you uh like what that what that really needs to be what that's on the societal level that that interest needs to be in doing the hard work of making ourselves better as a species not just about you know, blowing our minds, you know, it's not, it's, I, I, the, the worst case scenario to me is that it becomes another extension of just the sort of pervasive media entertainment escapism culture that people are using to cope with the, 
rough shape that our planet is in and it's getting increasingly rough and like escapism is an understandable but tragic response to that and it's so easy and possible to at least think of psychedelics and meditation as a form of escapism and what i'm and for some for many people it will succeed and they'll just stare at the wall and you know instead of staring at the television but for a not small proportion of those people, something much more frightening can happen. And, and, and it's, it's because of the attitude that these are personal pursuits and they're not, you know, ways of, 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 of turning the ship of humanity around. Householders is a production of the Atlanta Soto Zen Center in Atlanta, Georgia, and the Silent Thunder Order. Find us on the web at ASZC.org. Our Sangha depends on your support. You can donate by PayPal to donate at storder.org. Gasho.